This is episode number 237 of the Well-Fed Women podcast. You are now listening to Well-Fed Women, the show that's been radically changing the way women perceive health, fitness, and their bodies since 2015. I'm your host, Noelle Tarr. Submit your questions to wellfedwomen at gmail.com, and you can keep up with the show on Instagram at wellfedwomen. Hello and welcome back to the Well-Fed Women podcast. I am super excited to have part two of our interview with Lily Nichols today. She has been a wealth of knowledge and information. She gets into the nitty gritty, the nitty gritty, the all the little ins and outs that we all want to know. She's got answers. And so today we're going to be specifically talking about gestational diabetes. What happens if you do get diagnosed with that? What does she think about the glucola drink and that test that we all have to go through in our third trimester if we do get pregnant? And we also are going to be talking about postpartum nutrition. So nutrition for breastfeeding, nutrition if and supplementation if you do have something like postpartum depression, and how to best recover from just the drain of pregnancy and breastfeeding. What can we do to, to set ourselves up for success? I'm not going to read through Lily's. Uh, bio again, but I will mention she has two books, Real Food for Gestational Diabetes and Real Food for Pregnancy. We'll link to both of those in the show notes. Her website is lilynicholsrdn.com. She's a registered dietitian and a certified diabetes educator. Welcome again, Lily. Hey, thanks for having me (laughs) back, Noelle. I'm super excited to have you back. And I know I say that a lot. I'm like, oh, I'm really excited. But today I really am. I I just... I. Today, it's true. <laughs> I'm not faking it. Uh, I never am. But this is like, I, and I think it'll obviously be really exciting for everybody else listening to. But it's really enjoyable to have somebody like you on who has just gone so deep into the research on a, such an important topic. And I love being able to pick people's brains. And I think that you're a brain that I would love to be able to pick probably on a weekly basis. <laughs> Hey, what do you think? I would, you, 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 you may now get Instagram direct messages from me being like, hey, um, so I got this question and now it set me off and now I'm researching and I just need to know what you think. Just tell me what to do. Just tell me what to do. Um, so, yeah, I'm excited that you're here and we are really going to get into some more questions. And um, I'm so thankful that you've decided to spend two hours with me. So, hey. I'm happy. We're only recording for one hour today, yeah, though. Right? I know. Yes, yes, yeah. This is these are two part two part episodes recorded weeks apart. So yeah, because that's because schedules. But yeah, so I'm I'm thankful. So just to kind of summarize what we talked about last episode, we were really talking about preconception nutrition and nutrition for pregnancy, especially how to get through some of those really rough first trimester experiences where sometimes we're throwing up or we're nauseous and it's really you know, nutrition's important during that time and so we talked about supplements we also talked about intermittent fasting now we are going to move into the third trimester so the first question is what are your thoughts about the glucola drink that my doctor recommends is it a good idea to do it to test for gi- Gest- gestational diabetes. I've heard a number of different op- opinions about the accuracy of the test, and I want to make sure I know what my options are. And then a follow-up question is, if you fail, what should your next steps be? 
Usually they obviously have you do a three-hour test, and I would love to know what you think. So, Lily, if you could, because before I got pregnant, I had no idea what this gestational diabetes test was. I knew that they were going to try to make me drink some drink, and so I tried to research and be like, well, what, is there another thing I can do? Like, what is this? And then I I got real deep into, it's not accurate. It's this, it's, you know, you, if you get, sometimes you take it and you're, and it's not accurate in terms of you get diagnosed with gestational diabetes or you have to take another test and you may not even really have it. And so it gets sort it's sort of nerve wracking. And I know you've done all the research. So can you talk to us first about what this test is and why it's important? And then what are your thoughts about it and maybe some options? I'm, I'll try to unpack all this. So <laughs> just give some background information I do think gestational diabetes is something that's important to identify. There are known risks for having consistently elevated blood sugar throughout pregnancy. And if your body adapts to pregnancy as nature intended, your blood sugar should not run high. So that's a misconception. Some people believe gestational diabetes is like a a made-up diagnosis. It's not. Your blood sugar actually should be running about 20% lower during pregnancy than it does outside of pregnancy. So let's get that off the table first. The challenge with screening for gestational diabetes is the conventionally accepted gold standard is the glucose tolerance test. And unfortunately, it's not a perfect test. There are also many different ways to do the test, which varies based on your practitioner's familiarity with the options, with which guidelines they're following with which country you're in because pretty much everywhere outside of the U.S. does a different version of the glucose tolerance test than what we do here, which is the one that you're describing, which is a screening test with a smaller amount of glucose followed by a diagnostic test with a larger amount of glucose. Now, the screening test, which is the 50-gram glucola or 50 gram glucose tolerance test has a pretty high rate of false positives. It's sort of intentionally designed that way to be a bit of a catch-all. They like, they, they want to err on the side of caution. Um, but then you have to follow up with an additional test with a hundred grams of glucose to verify whether or not the person truly has a blood sugar issue or not. That's all fine and good. If all of the diagnostic criteria agreed with one another. So like different clinicians will have different cutoffs for diagnosis, which is really frustrating. There can be situations where you will still get a false positive or false negative on the glucose tolerance test. And this is particularly true of the two-step method that is most commonly used in the U.S., the one that's used internationally, which is a single test of 75 grams of glucose for two hours performed fasting is far more accurate, but pretty much most places except certain pockets of California um, don't employ that one, which is really frustrating as a pregnant person. The challenge with the glucose tolerance test in terms of whether or not it's accurate is that in the case of people who eat generally a lower carbohydrate diet, or at the very least avoid large boluses of sugar, like you don't do smoothies, you don't do juice, 
you're not regularly taking in large amounts of sweet potatoes or bread or pasta or cereal or whatever. You're not getting a huge bolus of carbohydrates at one time. Your pancreas is not primed to produce a huge amount of insulin to bring down a giant blood sugar spike because it doesn't see that very often. And we've known since at least the 1960s from peer-reviewed medical journals that if you are not consuming a large quantity of carbohydrates on a regular basis, you are pretty much set up to fail a glucose tolerance test. Whereas somebody who regularly consumes any of those foods I've just discussed, at least in, you know, what I'd call normal quantities, or you're getting at least like 150 grams of carbs a day or more. If your body is truly well adapted to handle that carbohydrate load, you should pass the glucose tolerance test with absolutely no problem. So I think it gets a bit tricky when we're in sort of like the paleo or low carb or keto kind of space whether or not it makes sense for you to do a glucose tolerance test. And if you're going to do it, um, you do want to consume at least 150 grams of carbs a day for probably a week or maybe more before your test. So you reduce your risk of getting a false positive. That that's, I guess that's, that's in a nutshell, the glucose tolerance test answer, but let me know if I can clarify anything. Cause I could talk about this topic for like probably three hours. Okay, so what you're saying is not only are people who do develop gestational diabetes, they're, they're likely going to fail the test, but people who do not eat a lot of carbohydrate who are following a more lower-carb lifestyle, they have a higher predisposition to fail the test? Correct. Okay. You might fail. You might not. It's a bit of, it's a, a toss-up. So people can fail the test when they don't have gestational diabetes is what you're saying? Yes. I've had a handful of these cases clinically in, in my career. Interesting. So what do they, you've mentioned that they do think other things overseas. What is it that they do overseas if they don't do the typical glucola drink? Well, they do a glucose tolerance test, but the criteria for diagnosis are different. So the cutoff points are different. It is, and it's performed fasting. It's a different amount of glucose. And they test you for two hours after instead of three. So in the U.S., you have a two-step method. The first step is a, a screening test with 50 grams of glucose. They check your blood sugar only after you've had it. So you, you drink the drink. They test your blood sugar an hour after. It's not performed fasting. So say you come in right after lunch and you take a glucose tolerance test. By the way, bad idea. Um, your, if your blood sugar is started out higher because your body is still digesting the food that you just ate, then like you're pretty likely to fail <laughs> your screening test, right? The second part of the test, say you fail that, is a 100 gram three hour glucose tolerance test performed fasting. So typically you go in usually in the morning, they check your blood sugar before you've had the drink and then one hour, two hours and three hours after. So it takes three hours out of your day, which is frustrating. It's a lot of sugar and it makes a lot of people feel like garbage or you might even throw up or whatever. And the cutoff for diagnosis varies based on which diagnostic criteria you're using. There's several different options. And so it, it'll vary clinician to clinician, hospital to hospital. It's like all over the map. 
the one done internationally is 75 grams of glucose performed fasting and they check your blood sugar at fasting one hours and two hours. That's it. It's a one, it's a one-stop shop and they have um, much more stringent diagnostic criteria. Interesting. So I personally have had, so I've always seen midwives. So they've always had, which is very similar to being in an OB office. It's, it's no different. It's not, I think people, when they, they think midwife, they think, oh, that's like a little bit more hippy-dippy. It's not. I went into an office. They had ultrasound equipment in the office. I pee in a cup. I can get prescriptions written by midwives. Basically, they can do almost everything that a traditional OB would do. They do by pap smears, all that stuff. They just can't perform surgery. So they typically do have trusted OBs that they work with in case of um, situations like these, where if somebody gets diagnosed with gestational diabetes when there's some sort of high-risk situation, then you get referred out to somebody who's able to handle that, whether that's maternal fetal medicine or whatever. And so in my midwife office, I do think that they were a little bit more they they come prepared because they know that people want alternatives. So I was given the option on a piece of paper to eat food for the glucose test instead of doing the drink. And with my pregnancy with Stella, I was actually given the option to drink a drink that was dye free. So it was just basically like sugar and water. Is there is it the test more accurate when you do food? And should you choose the food option? And if our practitioners don't give us options, alternative options, should we ask for it? Yeah. So let's, let yeah, let's unpack this. Let's talk about alternatives because a lot of the alternatives that are offered, in my opinion, are, are not good. <laughs> there are some good options, but we have to think about what is the test trying to measure? And then like, what is the purpose of like, what is the what is the purpose of the test? What are we trying to catch here? And that sort of helps you understand what might be the best alternative to go for or not. I mean, when people want to avoid a glucose tolerance test, and by the way, informed consent, you can decline anything you want. A lot of times it's due to all the junk that's in the actual drink itself, the brominated vegetable oil, the dyes, the whatever, or maybe even just the quantity of sugar that's in there, in which case many of these replacement options that people argue for that have the same amount of sugar as the glucola don't make sense in my opinion. But yeah, you absolutely can argue for a dye-free version, like the lemon-lime flavor is usually dye-free. You could even argue for a just measuring out 100 grams of pure dextrose, which is another word for glucose, but you buy it as dextrose, so you'd need a food scale mixed with eight ounces of water, follow the same thing. You're just getting pure glucose with none of the other nonsense in it, but you're testing the same thing. What is your body's response to a pure, very exact quantity of glucose? Otherwise, if you're, if you're doing some like wannabe version of that, that has approximately that amount of glucose or carbohydrates, but may or may not be pure glucose itself, you're not actually doing the test. <laughs> like there is a reason that they have the really strict criteria that they have where it's like, okay, you're over, I'm going to make up a number, but like you're over 180. Okay. This is a problem. You're under 180, not a problem. If you're doing like 
a test meal, juice, a jelly bean test, all of those are an imprecise replacement for the glucola. Like the one study that tested the jelly bean test and found that it could be used as an alternative to the glucola, people don't realize they actually sent in the jelly beans of that specific brand to a laboratory to have measured so they could quantify the amount of glucose that was in the jelly beans. They didn't choose a serving of jelly beans that was 50 grams of carbohydrates. They chose a serving of jelly beans that was 50 grams of simple sugars. And that was actually the serving size for that particular brand of jelly beans, which could be different for many other brands of jelly beans, was actually provided 72 grams of total carbohydrates. So we can't like jelly bean tests, unless they're sending off the specific jelly beans you're using to a lab to quantify the amount of pure sugar that's in there, pure simple sugars, it's inaccurate. If you're doing juice, juice isn't pure glucose. It's a mixture at the very least of glucose and fructose, which have different glycemic effects. If you're doing a test meal, oh, for God's sakes, <laughs> it's all over the map. A, food labeling is not accurate. That can be 20% off by law. You're having protein and fat often in the context of that meal, so it's not pure carbohydrate. And moreover, people's response to different carbohydrates is different. You see this if you measure your blood sugar or if anyone who's worn a continuous glucose monitor. It's so variable. These are not good replacements, in my opinion. My choice on a, a replacement test would be to just measure your blood sugar at home with a glucometer for two weeks before meals, like first thing in the morning, fasting, and then after meals. It's usually at either one hour or two hour. I prefer the one hour mark. And then compare those numbers to the cutoffs for gestational diabetes. And in my opinion, also what studies have shown is a normal blood sugar range for people who don't have any health concerns, blood sugar issues, gestational diabetes, anything like that during pregnancy and see where you fall. The reason that testing your blood sugar at home after actual meals can be helpful is that you might identify that there's certain meals that are like not so great for you and you have some actionable information, but moreover, you're actually measuring something that matters which is your blood sugar levels on a regular basis. It doesn't matter what a single time point reading is on a glucose tolerance test. If say you get a false positive, but then you start testing your blood sugar and all of your readings are within normal, even when you're eating high carbohydrate options, then like that just shows you that the glucose tolerance test was not accurate in your particular situation. Whereas I've had some people who barely fail a glucose tolerance test, like they're one point over on say the fasting reading. And if they go out for Thai food, their blood sugars are in the 200s, which is like more than double where they should be. That is a person who might be missed by certain diagnostic criteria, depending on what their practitioner is using, but really probably has like undiagnosed type two diabetes, <laughs> you know? So it's like the numbers that you actually get during the day give you so much more information than just a single test. And then I do want to mention one other option before we, we wrap up this part, which is a hemoglobin A1C, which is a test that measures your average blood sugar 
at least in the context of like outside of pregnancy or early pregnancy for about two to three months. So studies have shown that if you measure a first trimester A1C, and it needs to be a first trimester A1C, if your blood sugar is in the pre-diabetic range, which is anything 5.7% or higher, the likelihood that you're going to fail a glucose tolerance test, in other words, the likelihood that you have gestational diabetes or will develop gestational diabetes is extremely high, especially as you get to A1Cs at 5.9% or higher. If you're in that range, the chance you'll fail glucose tolerance test is 98.4%. So essentially, we're identifying pre-diabetes that was going on before pregnancy that's just going to continue to get worse over the course of the pregnancy, and we call it, quote, gestational diabetes. But that's really what we're seeing. And that's actually the majority of gestational diabetes cases that we see. It's not something that's like a a random phenomenon of pregnancy. There was a pre-existing blood sugar issue that only becomes apparent or is only diagnosed in pregnancy. So in the state of California, with the California Diabetes and Pregnancy Program, for which I used to work for, we recommended screening with A1C universally across the board first trimester. If you were 5%, if you were 5.7% or higher, you were, quote, treated as if you had gestational diabetes for the remainder of your pregnancy. And then you have two-thirds of your pregnancy to learn how your body responds to different foods, to understand your, you know, blood sugar response to a pasta meal versus a meal with vegetables and steak or whatever. You can actually take action and prevent a lot of the complications that tend to coincide with gestational diabetes or develop as a result of elevated blood sugar because you have two thirds of your pregnancy to take action versus like the last trimester or like the last two months or the last month, depending on when, when you did your screening. So that's a a huge tool that we can use. And I recommend people just get an A1C first trimester across the board. You don't have to fast. It doesn't, it just can be added to your first trimester blood work and that's it. And you can, understand your potential relative risk for having blood sugar issues and decide to take action on it at an earlier time point. Now, if you pass the hemoglobin A1C, so say you're 5.6 or below, it doesn't mean you won't develop gestational diabetes. Like that could still happen. Um, So you do want to choose a screening option for later on in your pregnancy. A1C becomes inaccurate later in pregnancy. You really can't rely on it as a diagnostic measure for a number of reasons. Um, but it does give you sort of like a relative risk. So you can sort of make an informed choice on how to go about the rest. So what is a good A1C number? Say, say somebody gets that taken in their first trimester. What would, what would they be hoping for? Well, I mean, technically anything that's 5.6% or lower is good. I mean, the closer we are to like the low fives, like 5.4, 5.3, 5.2, the better, but technically like 5.7 is the cutoff. So, And it sounds like what you're saying is gestational diabetes is, of course, it's it's an important thing to screen for. It's important to know if you have gestational diabetes because severe complications can come from that. And so we want to be able to accurately test it. The best way to do that is to test your own blood sugar at home. That is what I've done with both of my pregnancies. It wasn't that hard. 
Was it super convenient? Not really, but neither is going in for a three-hour test and being misdiagnosed with gestational diabetes. And I really wanted to know what my blood sugar was, fasting, and then one hour post each meal. So it was, I was taking it four times a day, recording it, and then took it into my midwives. They didn't have that as an option. I asked for it. They said yes, of course. And I said, this is what I'd like to do. What would you like me to do? What numbers do you want from me? And how do you want me to give them to you? <laughs> you know, like, do you, can I send right. you an email? Is it something I can write down on a piece of paper? And it was just an email. And so that is how we, you know, oh, these numbers look great. So then we moved on. It was never talked about again. And I'm sure that you have a lot of information about what numbers are good and what numbers aren't so good when it comes to fasting versus post-meal blood sugar. Is that right in your book? That's correct. Yeah. So chapter nine of Real Food for Pregnancy um, has all the information on on your options for screening for gestational diabetes, the pros and cons, and a lot more detail than what we just talked about. Yeah. And also the blood sugar level targets for pregnancy as well. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. And that's that's so helpful, too, because I was evaluating while I was taking my blood sugar, I was evaluating, you know, my own personal responses to it based on what the number that I was getting. And I did this, and then we interviewed Rob Wolf on, and he was talking about his his individual, this idea of individual carbohydrate tolerance, which I yes. think is really fascinating to think that, oh, you know, for so long it was like, avoid carbs, carbs are bad, carbs are bad. And then it was, you know, I mean, I... I was in an extreme situation where I had somebody who, you know, in my CrossFit gym who owned the CrossFit gym who wouldn't even like eat an apple. Like he was not, he did not think you should have any sort of sugar or carbohydrate in your diet, period. Mm. And, you know, it's easy to get caught up in that. And then you kind of come back to, oh, okay, well, maybe I have maybe my maybe we all have individual responses to this maybe it's not one size fits all and maybe carbohydrates aren't really bad we just need to test our own individual tolerance to that because if somebody eats carbohydrates in their diet that doesn't mean that they are experiencing a ton of inflammation in their body their body can respond and manage that pretty well you know that's a possibility yeah so it was really fascinating to have him come on and talk about that and say you know i responded terribly to rice i don't remember exactly what he said but you know just an example like oh well i responded terribly to rice but i actually had a really positive response and my body handled beans really really well or handled Mm -hmm. corn really well that Mm -hmm. idea to me is really like next level like i just i think that's so cool and that's the kind of information that you get if you do something like test your own blood sugar in your third trimester because honestly you do you should be i think that that's important to know we should know how our body's responding to the carbohydrates that we're eating especially in the third trimester so yeah, absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. And I think nowadays, now that the um, you know technology around continuous glucose monitors is becoming more widely available and inexpensive, and hopefully someday available without a prescription from a medical professional. I mean, you can learn so much information. Like I have a blog post on my site on my uh, CGM experiment. If you just search on the search bar, my site should come right up. And um, it's fascinating to see what is 
what carbohydrates do you tolerate well? Which ones don't you tolerate well? So like Rob, I don't tolerate rice all that well. Oatmeal is a disaster. Um, beans are fine. Real naturally fermented sourdough bread. Yes, it has wheat and gluten. Oh my God. Like a piece of that in the context of a whole meal, totally fine. Potatoes in the context of a whole meal, totally fine. You know, it's just, it's really variable on the specific source of carbohydrates. Um, and, and that's something that we can't predict. Like the studies on it are, I mean, you know, you know that people eating like refined sugar and refined carbohydrates are going to have a, a not so favorable response <laughs> in their blood sugar readings. They've done like CGM experiments on people without diabetes. They give them cornflakes and milk. 80% of them spike into either the pre-diabetic or diabetic blood sugar ranges. Like, okay, yeah, like these foods are probably a mismatch to our physiology. They're just hyper, overly processed, refined grains are like, no bueno. When it comes to some of these whole food sources of carbohydrates, though, um, you, you see a pretty significant difference, like person to person on what their response is going to be. And I think that's something that you really only learn by testing your blood sugar yourself over a period of time. This podcast is brought to you by the Nutritional Therapy Association, an organization that has been training and certifying nutritional therapy practitioners and nutritional therapy consultants in foundational holistic nutrition for over 15 years. Go to nutritionaltherapy.com to learn more about the programs which empower graduates with the education and skills they need to launch successful, fulfilling careers in holistic nutrition. I'm personally an NTP, and the nine-month program was instrumental in helping establish my own career in health and wellness. Go to nutritionaltherapy.com to learn more about each program and sign up for the classes which start in May or September of this year. If you do, be sure to put down Well-Fed Women as your referral, and you'll get a free copy of Coconuts and Kettlebells sent to you by me. That's nutritionaltherapy.com. If somebody does get diagnosed with gestational diabetes, how do they go? Is it is there hope? How do, how do they go about managing that and keeping their body healthy and their baby safe? Oh, yeah. I mean, my whole first book, Real Food for Gestational Diabetes, is like the let me talk you off the ledge, the health of your pregnancy and the health of your baby are not like in the toilet because you've got this diagnosis. This is what we do. This is how food affects your blood sugar. This is how we manage it. These are your options. You know, like take a deep breath. We'll work through this sort of situation. Um, absolutely. If you are diagnosed with gestational diabetes and you learn how food affects your blood sugar and you're able to maintain for the most part, for the majority of your pregnancy or from the majority of the time that you found out that um, maintain blood sugar levels in the non-diabetic range, you're at no higher risk for any of these complications as somebody who does not have a label of gestational diabetes. So it doesn't automatically mean that you'll have a big baby. It doesn't automatically mean you'll develop preeclampsia. It doesn't automatically mean that you'll have delivery complications and your baby will have low blood sugar at birth. It doesn't automatically mean any of those things. It also doesn't automatically mean that you'll be put on insulin or medication 
although that depends on the quality of nutrition advice that that you're given and and put into practice. Um, So it's absolutely possible to have still a very beautifully healthy pregnancy, um, regardless of having this label. So I'll, I'll, I'll say that first and foremost. The first thing that you want to do, of course, is to start understanding how food affects your blood sugar. And that starts with testing your blood sugar, writing down what you eat, and seeing what the response is to individual different meals, and then adjusting your diet accordingly. It, it doesn't need to be like a rocket science situation. In fact, Real Food for Gestational Diabetes, I very intentionally wrote in a really simple writing style. So it's easy for anybody of any reading level to follow because we don't need to turn this into some like bizarre, crazy, uncontrollable situation that you can only figure out if you're working with like the best specialist in the country. Like, no, it doesn't have to be that complicated. It can actually be pretty simple. So what kind of things, how do, so people really, your recommendation is to do the testing and then eat the foods that don't cause your blood sugar to don't spike. spike your blood sugar exactly so a lot of the a lot of the information that I provide and um, you know both in the book I also have a free video series over at um, realfoodforgd.com that walks you through some of like the first steps like I've just been diagnosed ah you know like <laughs> it, it'll it'll walk you through what to do um, if you don't want to buy the book right offhand at least watch those free videos and and learn some stuff. But, um, you know, I walk you through in the book, like which foods raise your blood sugar, which foods don't raise your blood sugar. How do you combine those foods in a way that's going to give you the best blood sugar responses, titrate your diet up or down in carbohydrates to like match what your body can tolerate. So like the meal plans and real food for gestational diabetes give you three different levels of carbohydrates that you can try out and it shows you exactly how to like adjust up or down from one of the plans to the other plans, which seems like this should be the standard across the board, by the way, but like, this is not the way that conventional diabetes, gestational diabetes training is done. The way that they do it is they give you one meal plan. They calculate your calories. They give you a meal plan with a minimum quantity of carbohydrates because, of course, we have to follow the dietary guidelines, which are 45 to 65 percent of your carbs, of your calories coming from carbohydrates. So a high carb diet, you got to meet this minimum amount of carbohydrates. And if your blood sugar is high, too bad, you're on medication and insulin. And my approach is your blood sugar is too high after having that. Okay, let's titrate your carbohydrates down. Oh, your blood sugar is perfect after that meal? Well, how do you feel? Was that enough food for you? Did you feel satisfied? Was everything good? Stay there. Did you feel like you could eat more food? Do you need to, you know, gain a little more weight? Like, sure, you could maybe go up um, a little bit on your carbs. But it's not this one-size-fits-all situation. It's very much individualized to the person. Mm, I love that. Uh, Let's talk about blood pressure, blood sugar and then we're moving on to blood pressure i have struggled on struggled with pregnancy induced hypertension i know the brewer's diet is recommended by some for dealing with these type of issues what have you found is the best way to keep blood pressure in check especially later in pregnancy so blood pressure is a bit of a 
Mm, it's a bit of a tricky situation in, in pregnancy because there are some nutritional factors that can play a role in your blood pressure for sure. And I have a whole section on this in real food pregnancy on high blood pressure. Um, however, I do want to say before we like go into this is that there's been pretty extensive research into the origins of high blood pressure or preeclampsia in pregnancy. And they still don't have perfect answers on how to prevent or treat it. So it is something where, yes, we know that nutrition and lifestyle can play a role is it always 100% effective or 100% preventative, like fail safe? Not necessarily. Like some of it could all, go all the way back to like the implantation of the placenta from like very early on or the development of the umbilical cord or some genetic or epigenetic factor that we, we don't fully understand. So I, I don't want people to like beat up on themselves. It's kind of like the gestational diabetes thing. Like there's things we can do to try to prevent it or mitigate it, but it's not always a hundred percent manageable with food and lifestyle. So I want to throw that out there, but moving on to the things that can help with reducing uh, blood pressure. Ironically, the first one is eating sufficient salt, which goes contrary to pretty much everything that everybody has been told about blood pressure and especially blood pressure um, in pregnancy. But A, for about 75% of the population, consuming salt does not automatically mean your blood pressure goes up. For most people, it actually does not change <laughs> their, their blood pressure in a negative way. In the context of pregnancy, your need for electrolytes, which includes salt and the sodium and chloride that are in salt, um, increases. And there's been research dating back to the 50s where they actually treated preeclampsia, which they called toxemia back in those days, with a high salt intake. They had women measure, I believe it was four, yeah, four heaped teaspoonfuls of table salt every day and made sure that they ate all of it. And it actually reversed the symptoms of toxemia, including the high blood pressure in almost all of the cases. And now we have a, a number of newer studies just from the last five years showing us that salt needs are higher in pregnancy. Um, and salt can actually make preeclampsia worse because it, it almost like dehydrates you from the inside if you don't have enough salt. Your body's always trying to play this like fluid electrolyte balance. And since you have so many more fluids in your body when you're pregnant, if you're not taking in enough salt, you'll actually um, see a reduction in the amount of amniotic fluid as your body tries to like keep that fluid electrolyte balance where it should be. So eat your salt to taste. This doesn't mean you get free permission to like eat all the junk foods that have a bunch of salt in them, though it's not the salt I'm worried about. It's all the other junk that's in them, but like eat real food, salt it to taste. Don't fear your salt. The second part would be to get a handle on your intake of refined carbohydrates and sugar. So we talked about gestational diabetes and how high blood sugar is often a result of consuming excessive amounts of carbohydrates, especially refined carbohydrates and sugars. It turns out that blood sugar and blood pressure 
tend to go hand in hand. So if you have elevated blood sugar, you'll often have elevated blood pressure. And this is something I observed clinically a number of times where I'd have, I used to work for a perinatologist, so like a high risk pregnancy OBGYN, right? And um, so I'd mostly get referred like gestational diabetes, preeclampsia, like all the complications. And when I do a diet recall on the people who had preeclampsia, it was almost always like the same sorts of things that the ladies with gestational diabetes were eating. Way too many refined carbohydrates, way too much sugar. Often they were restricting their sodium, as they had been told. But too much carbohydrate means high blood sugar and thus high blood pressure. And and you see it you see a very dramatic reduction in blood pressure typically when you just cut back on the poor quality carbohydrates. So things made with white flour and white sugar primarily, but also um, really high fructose items. So like fruit juice, like I think fruit is fine in like reasonable quantities, but if you're at the stage where you're going through like half a watermelon in a day, like you might want to rein in just like the quantity um, of, of fruit that you're taking in or like dates, which tend to be, people are all about the dates for labor and whatnot, like huge spike to your blood sugar and often a spike to your blood pressure as well. I don't care that they contain potassium. They're, they're sugar bombs. So you just want to be cautious, um, on that front. And then I could go on and on, but I'll, I'll just do one more and I'll kind of leave the micronutrient intake Um, for a separate discussion. But the last one would be enough protein, Um, especially protein foods that have a lot of glycine. So collagen rich um, animal foods. So anything made with bone skin and connective tissue of animal foods, which would be your bone broth, eating um, meat that's on the bone, like, you know, a whole chicken roasted, eat the skin on the chicken too, that has most of the glycine in it chicharrones, like fried pork rinds, um, really, really rich source of lysine. And they're like a, a nice standard for something like potato chips or whatever. And then of course you also have your, you know, your collagen or gelatin powders that you can mix into things. But they found that glycine, um, is protective against oxidative stress, which is a sign of preeclampsia. It helps to reduce blood pressure and blood sugar in studies. And it also helps with, uh, your, arteries and and veins like your your um, circulatory system keeping the integrity of that we think about like bone broth for you know all the naturopathic people are talking about how it seals the gut like it's really good for your gut linings whenever well the glycine that's in there is also really good for your circulatory system as well so you can like keep fluids where they need to be and so you have like integrity (laughs) to your to your um, circulatory system and it can kind of like expand and contract as needed as, as fluid amounts like shift at different parts of pregnancy. Um, So definitely enough protein, enough glycine. Hmm. That's interesting. That was a good tip. Can you talk about the best foods, supplements and nutrition immediately post delivery for recovery? Also, What's the best nutrition for maintaining 
milk supply and continuing to recover postpartum. And this is a little funny continuation of this question and maintain energy for life while starting to (laughs) to resume a fitness routine and getting back to the gym. She's she's about to have her first baby uh, next month. So I think oh, she's okay. a little, she yeah, is funny. It's like energy for, for life. Like, how do I just maintain my energy? So let's, let's make this a two part question. Okay. One, foods and supplements for that immediate postpartum experience where we are just tanked. We've lo- had a long pregnancy. We're tired. Yes. There's a newborn. We're not sleeping. And then extend that out for us and what should that look like long term especially within the considerations of maintaining a milk supply in our energy okay so uh yeah let's dive in i actually just published a big long (laughs) post on my blog called real food postpartum recovery meals that um people should check out but if you do have my book um, in Real Food for Pregnancy, Chapter 12 is all fourth trimester stuff, um, where we talk all about the food and the breastfeeding and all the considerations for recovery and nutrient repletion and yada, yada, yada. So it's all, I'll give you the highlights here, but there's like a very, there's two lengthy resources you can go to check out. First of all, the foods to enhance your postpartum recovery are oftentimes the same things that enhance your fertility and enhance your health and nutrition over the course of your pregnancy. So we don't have to try not to overthink it. It's kind of all the same thing. I've started using the hashtag real food is real food because people are like, well, what do I eat for X, Y, Z? Well, what do I eat for this? What do I feed my toddler? Well, what do I, it's like the same stuff is good for all the things, (laughs) first of all. So don't overcomplicate it. Um, What I will say is that we can learn a fair amount from the types of foods that were really emphasized in a lot of traditional cultures. And if you look at the postpartum traditions globally, you see quite a bit of overlap. And the probably the number one thing that you see repeated from, you know, the Middle East to Asia to Africa to South America is soups, stews and curries, especially those that are made with bone broth. And to come back to the collagen thing that we were just talking about, you need a heck of a lot of collagen, A, in pregnancy, but B, for postpartum recovery as well. And that's because you have a lot of tissues that are readapting that have stretched to like unimaginable <laughs> sizes over the course of your pregnancy. I mean, your, your uterus at term contains 800% more collagen than it did when you weren't pregnant. I mean, your uterus grows from the side of size of a pear to the size of a watermelon. It's just, it's just absurd, <laughs> like defies logic. And postpartum that your uterus needs to completely remodel and shrink back down to its original size. You have a massive wound left by the placenta. You have um, had a lot of connective tissue that stretched to allow your belly to grow to the size that it did. In addition to the, the skin that stretched, which has a lot of collagen, your breasts are going to stretch even more postpartum as your milk comes in, you get engorged. You have perineal tissues that if, if they didn't tear or get cut, they certainly stretch to deliver your baby. Or if you had a cesarean birth, you cut through multiple layers 
of tissue, which all contain collagen, to birth your baby, right? So there's a lot of things that require collagen for healing. Don't undervalue why those foods were so prized in in different cultures. So bone broth-based soup, stews, curry sort of situation. You definitely want high iron foods. There tends to be a decent amount of blood loss in birth, even uncomplicated deliveries. Um, But particularly if you had any postpartum hemorrhage or had a C-section, there tends to be even more blood loss. So high iron foods would be, you know, meat, especially organ meats like liver and heart. Um, So I have a lot of recipes in my book for uh, recipes that incorporate hidden liver in it. So you're like sneaking the iron rich, (laughs) B12 rich, blood boosting nutrients, but you're not necessarily tasting liver. And I could go on and on, but those would be like the top the top two most important ones. And then everything else that you've typically been eating, keep eating that to satiety. Expect that you will be ravenously hungry, probably for the first month. You will probably be out eating your partner or um, at the very least eating maybe double, triple, maybe quadruple quantities of food for a period of time, especially if you're nursing. But even if you're not nursing, you know, birth is like, uh, it's, a, it's a marathon or major abdominal surgery or a marathon plus abdominal surgery. And you need nutrients to heal. It only makes sense that you're extremely hungry and extremely ravenous for a lot of these um, nutrient dense foods. So that, those would be like my top ones, but there's a bunch more if you go to that post detailed on my site um, on real food postpartum recovery meals or chapter 12 of real food for pregnancy. That'll give you give you the rest. Okay, we will link to that in the show notes. What about supplements? Are, are there certain, I know that the recommendation is typically to continue prenat- your prenatal throughout your breastfeeding. Is it okay just to continue to take the one that we've been taking for pregnancy? Say that you are taking the one that you recommended from your friend, which was full circle prenatal, which, by the way, I did go and check that out. And it's like the perfect prenatal. <laughs> like, it's like, oh, yeah. this has all the things in it that everybody always talks about. So it's kind of cool. Um, should we be taking something really high quality like that with the choline in it and still has the folate in it? Or is it, should we switch to maybe a different multivitamin? Is there other supplements that we should be considering in during the postpartum time? So for the most part, continue taking the same things. Um, Whether or not you're nursing, I would take it for at least six months just to replenish nutrient stores. If you continue nursing um, beyond six months, I would continue especially with like your prenatal vitamin, with your vitamin D, if you need extra of that, um, with your DHA, if you're not a regular high consumer of uh, high quality seafood that has a lot of omega-3s in it already. Um, I think that makes a lot of sense. And that's not just for the nutrient replenishment for you, but you also can enhance the nutrient delivery in your breast milk as well, which is like a whole nother can of worms and a super controversial topic. But um, many of the nutrients, not all of them, many of the nutrients in your breast milk are actually reflective of your intake or your nutrient stores, really a combination of both. Um, So prenatal vitamin is like a good insurance policy. Um, And yes, the full circle prenatal or the seeking health optimal prenatal would be 
really good options to consider for postpartum. Um, as far as additional supplements, it really is going to be like highly dependent on what's going on. You know, like, are you struggling with anemia? You might want to continue with your iron supplement. You might want to add some additional, you know, vitamin B12 if those levels happen to be low. If you're not taking in a whole lot of seafood, iodine is really important in, uh, both for breastfeeding, for thyroid health, for a number of things. If you're taking a high quality prenatal, you should be covered on that. Um, but if your prenatal maybe isn't as comprehensive as the ones we're talking about, that might be an additional consideration. You might consider, you know, probiotics or gelatin or collagen. I mean, there's a number of things that you could consider, but the top three would be prenatal, um, vitamin D and a, a source of DHA. Are there specific supplements that you would recommend for somebody who's dealing with postpartum anxiety or postpartum depression? Yes. I mean, the same things we talk about. First, just make sure that you have your bases covered. I think the, the big one, if you take a high quality prenatal, is you're going to cover most of your nutritional gaps, which is also good because you might not like postpartum. It's hard to remember to take supplements or like do anything or get like five minutes to yourself. You know? I know. So, like, I know. <laughs> anything where we like reduce the amount of extra thought and things that you need to do as a new mother, all the better. Uh, I will say that there are studies on some specific nutrients that can impact a, you know, the risk of, or the severity of postpartum depression or postpartum anxiety and it tends to be your things like your DHA, your vitamin D, your iron, um, your choline. It tends to be a lot of these nutrients that are really, I mean, they're just vital to, to general um, brain health. You also might want to consult your, um, if you work with, you know, a more natural minded practitioner, there are um, a lot of herbs used traditionally that can be helpful for mental health things. I kind of shy away from recommending herbal stuff like across the board because it's so case by case specific and there isn't a ton of peer reviewed research on it. But um, Aviva Ram has a really excellent uh, textbook on herbal medicine for women that goes through a bunch of different herbal options that um, could be helpful. And, and certainly considering that, you know, it's often more than just nutrition and we need to sort of take a holistic approach to any sort of perinatal mood stuff and look at like postpartum.net to find a practitioner that might be helpful. They tend to have some of the best trained practitioners for perinatal like pregnancy and postpartum uh, mental health concerns, you know, just considering like, are you eating enough food? <laughs> like sometimes it comes down to some of the really basic sort of primal things. Like, are you being, do you have a support system? Are you being nurtured by other people? This was something that was sort of built into to traditional cultures that is sort of absent in the West. So if you're left to like care for yourself and a newborn, it's like, it's pretty hard not to have some sort of a mental health issue early on because you really do need a lot of support um you need people to like bring you food so you eat enough because like you might not be able to like stand and cook or have two hands free at the same time there's a lot of stuff that just comes down to really 
you know, fundamental, like we need caregivers <laughs> to help us right. um, early on. So I, I don't want to like paint the picture that it's all nutrition, but I, but it does definitely play a role. Yeah, it does a number on you. That is for sure. <laughs> it does. And I love that you're more comprehensive about it because I feel like a lot of the questions were, you know, what can I, how can I manage like I still feel exhausted um, a, a year later or I'm struggling with A, B, and C. So what can I eat for this? And sometimes it's, yeah, this is a really hard time and it may not be necessarily all about the food. While food can impact right. it, it's about, like you said, a support system. It's about working on sleep again and making sure that you're getting sleep again. It is exhausting. It's it's normal to be exhausted. Um, yeah. You know, granted all those numbers check out like your thyroid is okay, but it's yeah. Thank you for mentioning the thyroid. That should also be screened for if there's any sort of um, depression, postpartum depression, especially yes. or anxiety. Yes, gotta screen the thyroid. And I've had I've had people recommend that all women who have had a baby should be have had their thyroid screened within the first you know at six weeks you know postpartum. And I'm I'm glad that I did get and it's it's really helpful too to get your numbers done before you have a baby so that you know what to compare it to. Um, but you know, even if it's not a thyroid issue, it's still exhausting. It's draining. It's draining on your adrenals. It's draining and it takes a while a while to build from that. So it's not just about what can I eat in these next few months. It's what can I eat for the next year or two while this is a very demanding phase and I'm not sleeping a lot and I just have to take a step back and like take care of my body in other ways yeah. beyond just food. Yeah. So a lot of it is like sometimes the questions should be reframed because I feel like the way that we look at postpartum, especially in the West, is very much like, how do I keep doing all the things I was doing and going full speed ahead as I was doing before with a baby and not burn out? And it's like, wrong question. How do we slow down, take a step back, consciously do less and make a choice to the things that we are doing be things that are like filling our cup and being more self care focused. So we're a little bit less in survival mode at all times <laughs> postpartum. Um, this should really be where the focus is. And, and a lot of those cultural practices sort of forced you to do that. And nowadays we don't have that. It's like the opposite. It's like, how do you get back as quickly as possible? People have, we have generations upon generations of mothers who have had unrealistic expectations placed on them, who have like stepped up to the plate and done it. And it feels like you need to do that too, to like prove it as well, to like go back to work right away, to get your pre-pregnancy body back, whatever that is, that's a lie, um, to, you know, get your kid to sleep through the night, like right away. Like, you know, all these weird expectations that are just completely unrealistic you really have to take it slow. And that's a hard pill to swallow when we're all, you know, really go-getter, independent women who want to do all the things. It's like, it's it's hard to, to acknowledge that you can't do all the things and to instead choose like a few things that you're going to do um, and step back from the other stuff for a while while you heal. Um, and that includes, I know I didn't address the exercise one, but that includes exercise as well to really 
honor where you are in your healing process and uh, not push yourself too quickly um, to like reach some sort of a, a physical exercise kind of a milestone postpartum because there's a lot happening with your tissue recovery that simply takes time and it's not always a matter of like you have a problem because you did something wrong or you jumped back into exercise too quickly but like literally the research shows it takes a full year for your pelvic floor to return to pre-pregnancy function-ish um, postpartum and so when we're just like pounding the pavement running or like lifting heavy weights like sometimes people's pelvic floors recover really well and that might be great for them but like unless you have worked with a pelvic floor women's health physical therapist and have some sort of you know a extra confidence that your body is ready for those things you might just want to like take it easy and start slow for a while and see how you feel in the in the couple days after you do anything that's more physical and and make the call on whether or not it's the best thing for your body at that time because we really need to rest <laughs> like we do we need to move but we need to rest we need to honor our body where it's at um in our postpartum recovery honor our adrenals choose you know, movements that are not too stressful on your body as a whole. It's not just about the pelvic floor, but about like your energy levels. Like if you're feeling totally beat after a really intense workout and it's taking you like four days to recover, maybe you don't want to work out as intensely for a while. And that's okay. Like you're doing a ton of work healing and caring for a baby. This podcast is supported by Thrive Market, a membership community that uses the power of direct buying to deliver the world's best healthy food and natural products to members at wholesale prices. Go to thrivemarket.com slash wellfedwomen to sign up and get 25% off your first order. When you sign up for a membership, you're also sponsoring a low-income family in need with a membership. Thrive Market is like Whole Foods, Amazon Prime, and Costco combined. You can shop for thousands of health food and natural products that are 10 to 50% below retail prices and have them delivered to your door fast and totally free with a low minimum purchase. You'll find just about everything you can find at natural grocery stores on Thrive Market, plus more. And all of the food products are categorized by diet and lifestyle, making it easy to find allergy-friendly foods and snacks for your family. Get the highest quality products you love, minus the retail markup, and help American families thrive. To sign up and get 25% off your first order, go to thrivemarket.com slash wellfedwomen. I know I've heard of the idea of pregnancy spacing, intentional pregnancy spacing, and that's how our ancestors kind of managed their their health, um, intentionally taking time to recover, to replenish nutrients. Is there a specific, have you found in your research that there's a specific amount of time that it does take to bring your body back up to like a, a nutrient status that is, okay, I'm ready to have another baby again? Or, you know, because that, we're also putting breastfeeding into that picture. So is it, do we need to kind of, I mean, taking that into consideration, how long does it really take to replenish the nutrients and after birth and breastfeeding kind of get back to what I would consider to be pre-pregnancy levels, if that's such a thing? Yeah. 
Well, it's a, it's a really good question. It was something I, I researched and wasn't expecting to find a whole lot of information. I knew from like the ancestral perspective, like Weston Price had noted that a lot of cultures intentionally spaced children like two and a half to three years apart. And I was like, oh, that's such an interesting idea. But like, there must not be any research on it. No, there's like tons of research on this, which is fascinating. And they have found, they call it a short interpregnancy interval. Um, and there's differences of opinion on what defines a short interpregnancy interval. But they found as a whole, if pregnancies are really closely spaced, um, there are higher rates of pregnancy complications in the subsequent pregnancy, um, such as intrauterine growth restriction, preterm birth, neural tube defects, developmental delay, and on and on, as well as a number of maternal effects on um, certain complications, especially anemia. And the, there's been large reviews of like nearly 60 studies, and they can't they can't determine exactly why all of these things are happening. They think part of it is lack of nutrient repletion. Um, but they also think that there's some sort of a, a physiological uh, component, like the cervix hasn't fully healed. Um, the, the uterine scar, if you had a C-section delivery, might not be fully healed. Um, that maybe there's some nutritional depletion related to um, breastfeeding pregnancy uh, overlap. They, they don't know for sure, but certainly nutrition plays a role. And the research suggests that a minimum of 12 months from the birth of your last child to the conception of your next is beneficial to that second pregnancy and that second baby having like the best chance of everything going smoothly. Um, there is also research suggesting 15 months or ideally 18 months um, elapsing before you conceive your next is ideal. And that is something that actually pretty well corresponds. If you add nine months onto that, it corresponds right with the observed pregnancy spacing intervals that you see in traditional cultures where kids are about two and a half to three years apart by the time the next one is born. The challenge is nowadays, a lot of us are choosing to have kids later, <laughs> or not all pregnancies are planned, or you know, maybe for whatever reason, we want to have more closely spaced children. And it, it's not always like we don't have the luxury of time on our side, um, or the necessarily the ability to plan. And so I just think we need to, um, in those situations, or really in every situation, really prioritize nutrient repletion as much as possible. So continue eating all of your real nutrient dense foods continue taking your supplements postpartum, particularly if you want to have closely spaced children, like don't lapse in your prenatal, just keep taking it um, in the interim. You might want to do some extra screening to make sure everything is good. Like check your thyroid, check your vitamin D levels, check that you're not anemic, like do some of these things that are a little bit more um, proactive in the interim. Yeah. So you have just the best, you know, odds are in your favor. We're lucky that we live in a time where it's like most of us are not, um, at least probably the listeners of your podcast are not people who are like struggling with just 
getting enough calories in, for example, you know, like we have, we're not in like this hunter gatherer feast or famine sort of situation. So I think nowadays, like we do have some of these resources available to us to make it okay to have more closely spaced children, but it's just something to really, to really like think about if it's within your means to plan pregnancies a a little more with a little more time in between um, or if not, just really buckle down on the nutrient repletion. Did you see, happen to see any research about its effect on triggering autoimmune conditions like Hashimoto's, for example? In mother? Have, yes, having closely spaced babies. I know you were talking about some of those the impacts of that and the I known did, causes. Known yeah, causes. I did not see that specifically in, in terms of autoimmune thyroid conditions. However, we do know the more pregnancies, A, autoimmune thyroid conditions are often triggered by pregnancy or in the postpartum experience. And if you had something going on beforehand, it's likely to circle back (laughs) the next round um, and come back. But I think theoretically, you could make a case for it, especially with the nutrient depletion component, because there's a lot of nutrients involved in thyroid regulation also your thyroid is just very very strongly correlated with your adrenal function and just like stress and exhaustion as a whole so it makes sense that your thyroid would kind of be out of whack when you're not sleeping for (laughs) through the night (laughs) for a very long period of time (laughs) unfortunately um and also when your nutrient demands are a lot higher so you know you have like iron vitamin a vitamin d zinc iodine, selenium, um, DHA, there's a number of nutrients that are really um, heavily influence the health of your thyroid gland that become depleted over the course of pregnancy and lactation. So you combine that with the sleep deprivation and the stress of caring for a kid. And then say you get pregnant again, you have a young kid and like, dude, you know, I'm currently pregnant with my second. So I know how tough it is with a toddler and also being pregnant is it is far more depleting of your energy um, it's kind of a recipe for thyroid issues, really. Uh, I don't know if they're always entirely avoidable, but certainly it's one of those things where you continue to try to like stack the deck in your favor <laughs> and avoid it if possible. I think you made a good point too of like we have a lot of resources now. Like it's it's nice that we do have really quality supplements. We have information about the foods and how important nutrition is. And thank you, we are past the low fat, low calorie sort of push. And we're recognizing how important fat is and how important yes. cold water fish is and how important liverwurst is and and heme iron. And just these, you know, we, we have a really good understanding of, okay, maybe grass fed beef is really important here and B vitamins are really important. And it is important to get high quality DHA and, you know, all these things that Years and years ago, it was we were really pushing vegetarianism. We were really pushing um, being low fat, and it's so nice now to I I think personally that we've been able to kind of come back to oh I should be eating eggs regularly. I don't need to be scared of eggs. There's lots of choline in eggs and vitamin D in eggs, and we're teaching people about getting smart sun exposure and getting you know that vitamin D. And I think that that's of course going to make a huge difference. But at the same time. 
our stress level as a whole as a society is going up. <laughs> um, we're, we're expected to do more. We're expected to push harder. We're expected to be on social media constantly, help, you know, starting our own side gigs and doing, running our businesses and working. And so at the same time, <laughs> so maybe, maybe we're trying to take care of ourselves more because we are stressed out more. But you so perfectly stated that it isn't about figuring out how can we support keeping at our regular pace. And instead, how can we take the time and and take a step back and take the time for ourselves to really be in this phase where it is hard? And yeah, we're not going to be able to produce as much, and that's that's what's necessary, and that's what's part of the that's part of the process. What we really need to do is is take that step back and not keep trying to push. So thank you so much for your insight. Um, It's a hard pill to swallow. It's a hard (laughs) pill. It's not the pill we want to take. But sometimes it's forced upon us, you know, and so I I think the goal is to take the pill before it's forced upon you, because if it's forced upon you, it's very hard to come out of that. Yeah, sometimes you just need to own that, like, okay, like, I remember in the early weeks with my son, I was like, okay, if I just keep him fed, and I'm like, somewhat fed, the day is a win. Yes. Okay. Like, like, that's all I'm going to do. And like slowly over time, it gets easier to do a few more things. But it's like, when it feels like such a stretch to even try to get like a load of laundry in the washing machine, like you're doing too much. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So this pregnancy has been all about postpartum planning because I'm um, planning to be by Western standards, completely unproductive for a really long period of time Yeah, and, uh, prepare myself to be okay with that. And yeah. that's hard. <laughs> so yeah, my whole pregnancy was planning. How is I going to have enough food to feed my toddler? Like I, that's my, oh. m- my meals in the freezer were like quick and easy things I could pull out and feed Stella because she there eats a go. lot. Right. So I would put a ton of rice in a bag and I have still have some of those frozen and ton of meatballs in a bag and I have those frozen. And it's just, it's funny how things change. It's like, I, I yeah. need to be, how do, how can I survive? I need to make sure that I have food to feed my kid, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so it's just like, okay, as long as I can feed her, cause that's really the most stressful thing at this moment is she eats all the time. So it's like both both of us eating yeah. all the time. How can I make sure I feed her and me? Yeah. It's the bare essentials. I mean, it comes down to like the basic, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Yes. Like you're at the bottom of the hierarchy for, for a while. And yeah. it really just having food prepared is like, Oh, like amazing. It's amazing. Well, good luck. I'm excited. You're going to have your second soon. We'll definitely keep in touch with you. Everybody go follow her on Instagram. It's at Lily Nichols RDN. Correct. Yep. Okay. And then your website, you've got tons of awesome articles. We're going to link to the article that you mentioned in the show notes. We'll also link to her two books. Anything else you want to add? Anything else you're doing that we should be on the lookout for? Any new books in the works? (laughs) Not yet. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Stay tuned. (laughs) I started writing Real Food for Pregnancy at 10 months postpartum. So maybe check in like a year or so for now. And maybe, just maybe... I'll have a little brain power back to work on another project. We'll see. Perfect. Um, no, the, the soonest thing I'll probably come back to is, is some more uh, continuing education webinars in the Women's Health Nutrition Academy and uh, just trying to not completely uh, be lost from, from the interwebs for yeah. the next like year. I yeah. don't know. We'll see. We'll see. No promises. <laughs> 
It's it'll be a challenge, but you'll you'll do great. And you have so much awesome information on your on your website already and on your Instagram already. So there's lots to inhale if you need it. And of course, if you haven't listened to part one of this podcast, go listen to it. And um, and this has been such a, a wealth of information for so many women. And you've already written the book. So we'll if you're gone for a year, we will we will be OK and we'll still be buying your books. So. Well, thank you. Yeah. And thank you so much for being on and taking the time. For more from Lily Nichols, go to lilynicholsrdn.com. For more from me, go to coconutsandkettlebells.com. You can buy Coconuts and Kettlebells, the book, by going to coconutsandkettlebells.com slash book. It's also on Amazon. You can easily search it there. Thank you guys for spending time with us. It's a joy and an honor to spend time with you. We will talk to you next week.